0: So we're going to actually talk today about continuing this idea of building. Last last week we talked about building a life of worship and we had a look at um, um, John chapter 4 where Jesus actually goes purposefully goes to Samaria, the well of Samaria. He's heading uh, by that place and he goes there on an appointment to meet with a woman who is um, going to the well at midday which usually meant that she was probably um, not accepted amongst the other women because they all went in the morning. Um, and we, we um, studied the, the fact that Jesus really had a heart to cross the street. Remember, this year we're talking, and our theme for this year is to cross the street. What, that, what does that mean? Crossing the street means getting out of our comfort zone and going across to somebody who's maybe from a different culture or maybe from a different status in life or from, uh, from somewhere different than we are and reaching out to them and befriending them and trying to find out how we can help them or how we can minister to their lives. So crossing the street is a dangerous exercise. You have to look both ways. If you don't look both ways, you get hit with a semi-trailer as it's coming down the road um so you you need to take care you need to be careful and it sometimes takes you out of your comfort zone jesus found that he he went to samaria and he broke a couple of cultural rules when he went to samaria and talked to this woman Uh, first of all she was a samaritan woman and the and customarily jews never spoke to samaritans because they hated samaritans they thought that samaritans were dogs that's how prejudiced they were against Samaritans. There was a number of reasons why they thought that, and we're not going to go through those things again. But there was a real prejudice against the, those people from the Jews. The Jews were prejudiced against um, the Samaritans. But Jesus didn't have that prejudice. So he, it looked to the disciples when they came back that he was breaking all the cultural rules. And the, certainly the woman felt that he was crossing the street um, and breaking cultural rules. Not only was she a Samaritan, but she was a woman, and that was another big no-no. The men didn't talk to women, and so he broke those two rules. But he did it because he loved the woman, and he wanted to bring salvation to the woman. He was caring about this woman's life. And so he was willing to cross the street to reach this woman. <clears throat> and if you, read through the, if you went home and read through the rest of uh, John chapter 4, you would have read about Jesus actually focusing in on the harvest and recognizing that the harvest was actually those who are on the other side of the street that that's where they were and he said let's go and get them and uh, he was trying to educate his disciples accordingly so we looked at this verse and it says jesus declared believe me woman a time is coming when you will wor- when you will worship the father neither in on this mountain nor in jerusalem they had uh, different rituals you Samaritans worship what you do not know we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews yet a time is coming and that has come when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for they are the, uh, the kind of worships that the father seeks God is spirit and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and truth and so he was letting them know that worship is not a ritual it's not a an emotion it's not a place it's a heart matter and god is going to change our hearts jesus wants to change our heart and he wants to bring us to a place of truth before him so that we acknowledge our sin before him that we acknowledge our life and we live in a truthful relationship with god our father worship is being made alive in the spirit and the, the holy spirit does that. he causes us to come alive and it's dealing with the lies and the deceptions that satan has had his bound with for years sin is a deception. Sin is a deception. It's a deception that we think that we can um, have uh, in this life and get away with it without actually having a consequence. And and it's built upon the lies of Satan. Satan just sets up the lies there and convinces you of those and you continue to follow him and sin accordingly. So Jesus wants us to be worshipful people. Now, there's a couple of words in the Greek that uh, talk about worship and the first word I'm going to look at you is um, it's the word that's found in John chapter four it's the word proskneo and um, I think Galiza is going to talk about that later it means to bow to do reverence to it's a combination of two Greek words the word pros which means to go forward toward and the word kneo which means to kiss the hand I'm not sure if that's the way you pronounce it but that's the way I'm pronouncing it Uh, There is a couple of other commonly used words in the Greek to define worship um, and the word latrio is another word that is used to describe worship. So "proskynio" is used as worship and so is latrio. Now latrio is... uh, It has the idea of to serve or to render religious service or homage. So today when we're talking about our sermon about building a life of worship, we're actually going to talk about building a life of service because it's uh, not just deeds that are done like in a ritualistic fashion, it's deeds that are done in the acknowledgement of God's character in a worshipful way. Um, there are some lesser words that are used Uh, these are the lesser words that are used and they're only used once or twice in the new testament to revere to honor to act piously and to do service or to cure and heal they're greek words Uh, there are other words that are in the um, hebrew but they have the idea or the nuance of falling prostrate before the lord and doing reverence and fearing god so those are the ideas in terms of worship nowhere in the greek and this is The Greek uh, Vines Dictionary tells us that uh, the worship of God is nowhere defined in Scripture. What it means by that is you can't actually find anywhere in Scripture where it says, now to worship, this is what you have to do. You know, you have to go to church and you have to do this practice and do this thing and do this and that's worship. It's nowhere defined. So worship is a verb, but they don't tell you what it is that you have to do to worship. We can see from these words a broad understanding. It's, and I've got and read it. It's broadly may be regarded as a direct acknowledgement to God of his nature, attributes, ways, and claims, whether by the outgoing of heart in praise and thanksgiving, or a deed done in such acknowledgement. So today we're actually looking at the second part of that definition. We're looking at the deeds done in that acknowledgement, in the acknowledgement of God, his nature, his attributes, and his character. So let me explain that to you, what that means. Because God is like he is, and because I understand his character, and because I live in a relationship with him, then I will do things differently. Do you understand? And the things that I do differently, are, as far as God is concerned, different because I acknowledge his character his nature, and his attributes. So let's put it into something practical, something simple. Um, say I'm, I'm seeing a person in need, and that person is destitute. There's no way that they can survive without help. And I recognize that I was once destitute before God and that God helped me, and that he is the fount of blessing to my life and that he wants me to be a fount of blessing to another person. So as I'm sitting there looking at a person who's destitute, I'm thinking to myself, Father, what would you have me do to minister to them like you ministered to me? So a deed done in the acknowledgement of God is, is looking and seeing what God would do and then saying, accordingly, I will live and do that as well because of his nature and because of his character. So good deeds, deeds that are done in charity are done because... Not because this is what you ought, should, must do for people who are in need. You do those good deeds because you know the heart of God and you do them in acknowledge of God's character and nature. Amen? So that's what we're going to be looking at today. The direct acknowledgement to God, His nature, attributes, ways and claims. Whether by the outgoing of praise and worship, which is is singing and praising God and thanksgiving to God, or deeds done in the acknowledgement, which is obedience and service towards God. So I want you to look at a passage of Scripture, and it's found in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So if you could turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, if you've got your Bibles there, to verses 1 and 2, and we'll read and we'll go go through this passage. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your... Reasonable service. Israel's not having a happy time. No. What did, what did uh, Olga do to you? <laughs> okay. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Spiritual acts of worship, it says in in the NIV, or is truly the way to worship him, which is uh, the last bits were your reasonable service, your spiritual acts of service, or truly the way to worship him. Paul pleads in this passage of scripture. He is pleading with the Romans. He says, oh, look, I'm pleading. I'm urging you, he says. In view of God's mercy, he says, in view of the compassion and the pity and the mercy of God. So he's doing something, he's pleading for something in view of God's character and nature. He says, now the word mercy is an interesting word because it it means uh, the compassion, the pity, the mercy of God the bowels in which compassion resides or the heart of compassion. And that, um, we, u- we usually say if we love somebody, you get this another you know, warm, fuzzy feeling you get inside. You know, when David comes up to you and says, I really love you, you know, he's got that warm, fuzzy feeling inside. Well, in the old days, they, they, they say now, I love you from the depths of my heart. In the old days, they used to say, I love you from the depths of my bowels. <laughs> they used the, the word, the bowels of Compassion. So when you love somebody, you love somebody from the depth of your bowels. And, and the reason they did it is because around this section here, that's what they felt where the loving feeling was coming from. It was that sense of here they felt something. And the bowels of compassion... It's not what we think of today when we talk about I love you. And if somebody came up and said, I love you with all my bells, you'd, you'd think it's kind of odd. But that's the idea that it came from. The idea is this is where they felt the love. This is where they felt. And so Paul is actually saying, you know, he's using that and saying, you know, this is where God is feeling the love towards you in terms of his compassion the emotions, the longing, the manifestations of pity toward us. He's appealing to us on the premise of God's incredible love, his compassion, his urging, his feeling, his motion toward you. He says, and one of the things I, I want to make clear here that mercy cannot ever be given without sacrifice. Now, I, I, you heard this morning um, um, Alan sort of talking about the cherubim and the ark and the mercy seats when he was praying. Let me, let me. See. I can't. I, I, I suppose I could draw it for you, but in the ark, the Judaistic art that they had, they had a, you know a box where the presence of the glory of God was, and on on each side of the ark they had a cherubim, which was an angel with wings. And so, Alan, come here, mate. You can. We can actually show them physically, show them. So this is. This will be the ark here okay and in the middle of the ark we had there was what was called the seat of mercy okay and then on this side there was a cherubim who spread his wings and on the other side there was a cherubim who spread out his wings and every year was it once a year the priest he would kill the, the the fatted calf and he would bring the blood and he would bring the blood and he would sprinkle it In the holiest of holies, which is in the center of the temple, he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Now, like Alan said on this thing, this was the seat of judgment, which means, you know, if you sin, God will kill you. If you sin, God will will send you to hell. And the reason why he's not going to kill you now is because blood is sprinkled on there, and it's someone else's blood, not yours. Thanks, Alan. It was the blood of Jesus that was sprinkled onto the mercy seat. So that Jesus took the punishment, and because he took the punishment, mercy could then flow. Because mercy can't flow unless someone's been judged. The Bible says, without the forgiveness, uh, he says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So blood has to be shed before mercy can flow. And we'll talk about that when, when we're going through this, because this is really important to understand, especially in acts of service for God understanding that you have to have a right understanding of the character of God is incredibly important when you start working for God. There can be no compassion, there can be no mercy unless someone else has paid the price for that. And for, in the Jewish things, when the Ark of the Covenant was a lamb or a goat or a bull's blood was shed in there and then that was paid the price, temporary, only temporary, for the sins. Next year he had to go and get another one and bring it back and do the same thing again for, for this atonement. But Jesus' blood avails for all time because Jesus is an eternal being. He shed his blood and it covers sin for all time. He doesn't have to get sacrificed again. It's one sin for one sacrifice for all time. So Paul is pleading with us and and drawing this up and saying, look, because Jesus paid an incredible sacrifice, he then is building his argument. He says, then I'm asking you to uh, present your bodies a living sacrifice towards God because of Jesus' incredible sacrifice. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because Jesus sacrificed himself, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So, I mean, the word to present is an interesting word because it means that you actually have to do something. A lot of us want to go into church and want to be part of church, but you know, it's, we don't have to do anything, that's fine, just let's watch. And Christianity is not a passive faith. Christianity is an active faith. Not that you're actually doing something to get saved, but once you are saved, you're actually actively doing something. And what Paul is saying here, because Jesus paid this incredible sacrifice, because the mercy of God is flowing towards us, he's saying you have to place yourself, your body. You know, the word body is the word soma, which means, just means your flesh, your, your whole body. You've got to place that as a sacrifice. Now, Jesus was a victim. He was the victim of our sin and he was punished for our sin. That's what Jesus took. He says then because Jesus took that, then you have to pay the part as well. You have to become a sacrifice as well. He says you have to set yourself on that thing. You have to put yourself up there. You have to do that. Now, this is a difficulty because we have to pay something here. To do what God wants us to do, if we want to live what God wants us to live, it's going to cost us something. Paul is saying because it cost Jesus something, I'm appealing to you now that it costs you something. It's got to be reciprocated. So if you like, you got to put yourself on the altar. You can imagine an altar, a burnt offering. If they'd have an altar there, and they'd. They'd put some sticks there and then they'd take the the, the the slaughtered calf and they'd put it up there and then, then the, they'd light the fire and the fire would go up and that would be a sacrifice, and offering to God. Well, he's saying that you've you actually got to put yourself up on there now as a living sacrifice, full of life. You've got to start to learn to sacrifice in your life for Jesus. Because of the great sacrifice he's paid for you, If you want to really worship him, if you want to live a life that's worshipping before him, if you want to do acts of service for him, it's going to cost you something. You can't keep on living the way you are and not giving anything. It's going to cost you something. Now, he's not talking about finances. here. He's not talking about church offerings. He's talking about your whole life. He's talking about the way you live. You have to do something because of what Jesus has done. And the thing that we have to do is not to be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we may prove what is the good, acceptable and perfect will of God. So God wants us to change, to be conformed to his word and transformed from where we were to something new in him. Now there are two great failures in life, especially in the church. And the two great failures with regard to worship and service is that we don't understand the nature and character of God well enough to do our worship well enough. I want to explain this to you. If worship is a direct acknowledgement of his nature, attributes and ways and claims, then we get it right in terms of, we've got to get it right in terms of God. If we don't understand his nature, attributes and claims, then you don't know how to worship him. You can understand that, can't you? Let me see if I can explain it to you. There's two great failures when we communicate out of our lives and they're failures with regard to an understanding of God's holiness and an understanding of God's love. That We, we fail in these two ways all the time. Churches fail, people, individuals fail. They fail to get the balance right between the attributes and the characters of God in terms of his love and in terms of his holiness. Yesterday, I had uh, a couple of people come knocking on my door. I opened the door. Oh, hello, Mr. and Mrs. Jehovah's Witness. Actually, it's two Mrs. Mrs. Jehovah's Witnesses. I want to... I wanna... Now, I'm usually, you know, look, I, I have my faith, shut the door. But, you know, when I was standing there, I opened the door and I said hi, and I thought the, and I felt compassion for them. I thought, these poor ladies don't know jesus don't love jesus and are out here talking to me on this really hot day hoping that i will listen to them and i'm going to shut the door in their face right now and i thought you know what i'm going to actually cross the street because we've got to cross the street this year so i stepped out of the door and i said Hi, how are you? And they said, oh, we looked at your van. We could see that you're part of a church. I said, yeah. She said, I'm just actually preparing a sermon right now. as you've come here. I was actually, can you open the door there? I think you've locked, locked down. Um, I'm preparing a sermon for tomorrow. She said, oh, what's the sermon about? I said, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> I said, it's about the love and the holiness of God. They wanted to know about it, so I started to talk to them about it. And I knew as soon as I talk, started talking to them, see, they get this wrong. I mean, I, I, I can go through, and, and as I'm going through and I'm talking to them, I know what they doctrinally don't believe. I know that they don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I know that they don't believe in hell. I know that they don't believe in a whole lot of other things. I know that it's a whole. Lot, I know exactly what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe and what they don't believe. So I, I can, as I'm going through, the thing that... that Surprise me is that they have this problem with the holiness of God. You see, they don't hold the holiness of God as being overly holy. They diminish the holiness of God. And why do they diminish the holiness of God? Because they're quite happy to say that um, when you die, the wrath of God, which is a direct relationship to His holiness, is going to be taken away. So that the worst that could happen to you if you're a Jehovah's Witness, if you don't or if you if you don't follow Jehovah's Way is when you die you pop into non existence, you are obliterated, into oblivion. You just become nothing. You don't know anything. You become nothing. Why? Because they don't believe, they can't grasp eternal judgment. And they can't grasp eternal judgment because they have diminished the holiness of God. And they have brought the love of God forward. You know, I said to them, you don't accept that there's an eternal judgment. No, no, no. I said, you just believe that when somebody dies, I said, they just drop into nothingness. That's right. We can't perceive or can't even grasp that God would be so unloving as to send somebody to hell forever and ever and ever. Okay, so they lift up the loving part of God and make the loving part of God very big so that he can can just never do anything like send anybody to hell. But to do that, you have to diminish the holiness of God. You see, they get it wrong right at these two paces, the holiness of God and the love of God. They get it wrong. Apart from all the other doctrines they got wrong. But at this point, that I said, you know, look, I'm not going to debate with you, I said, because you're not going to change your mind, hey. And, I, you know, I can go with you on everything that you're talking about. But I said, I just want one question. What happens if you are wrong and I'm right? And that God is so holy and in his matchless holiness... He has determined a day of judgment and that those who are not following him will be thrown headlong into hell forever and ever to be punished before him because of his eternal nature. I said, what happens if I'm right and you are wrong? Oh, we're not wrong. I said, no, 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 no. What happens if you are? Well, we'd be going to hell. I said, doesn't that concern you? No, no, because God would never do that. I would never do that. See, they, they shifted. I said, but you have then made God an unholy cop. He now waives the punishment for sin. He says, you can get away with it. So you have a problem with the character of God. Now, we talked and, and, and I could see that God was speaking into their heads. and, 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 and I, But, you know, it came to that point. They're right there at that point, understanding the attributes and the nature and the character of God and doing deeds accordingly. They had already fixed in their mind that God would never send anybody to an eternal damnation. I said, what do you do with all those scriptures? I said, you have to cut and paste them. Hey, oh, no, no, we just, they're figurative. I said, you reinterpret them another way. I said, this is the problem this is the problem i said if i'm wrong and you're right the worst i'm facing is pop into non-existence it's all over but if you're if i'm right and you're wrong i i fear for your eternity And then the woman said to me, but you know, when you're talking to people, what would you want them to hear about God? Ah, okay, so it's like because it's not palatable that God is awesomely holy and therefore will give internal judgment, we shouldn't say it. We should present something that's less, less, so that people will, you know, turn to it because it's... She says, oh, you just want people to turn to God out of fear. I said, most definitely, Jesus says you ought to fear the one who can throw you into hell, where your worm does not die. And I said, you should fear that. You should fear God. The Scripture says too. So that's interesting. Let's go to a passage of Scripture and let's see the balance here. When we preach, I, I listened to a, 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 a DVD that was somebody gave to me, "Father of Lights," it was called, and I saw the same problem there. It's a, it's a, um, it's a. Snapshot of a number of different ministries around the world. Now it's one of those feel-good d- DVDs that you see, and it, all these people doing works for God. Who's seen Father of Lights? Who's seen it here? Okay, so you'll know what I'm talking about. The others don't know. But it, look, I look there, and they're, they're emphasising the love of God. The love of God. We. It, and they're saying we shouldn't have to start telling people that they're going to hell. We want to, we want to bring people to the love of God. They've got to stand, stand the love of God's heart and the, the Father heart that he loves them so much and he, he's extending himself from it. And it's true. It's true. We, we, we do want to do that. But then in the in the DVD, I mean, I had problems both. I, I just Some of them was okay and then some was just difficult. It was just like all love, all gush, and Jesus loves you, give you cuss. You know, And then off they off walk away because they've just had an encounter with a person who's meant to be presenting Jesus to them, who is the salvation of their lives, who will redeem them from their sins and save them from punishment, who will help them to live a holy life before God. But they've had an encounter with a person and he's just showed them the love of God, kiss, cuddle, hug, we just let them pray for you and make you feel really nice and then walk away. Like, and their encounter with Jesus is one of only love, of not holiness. Now, Our scripture in Romans says, actually called us. He says, I beseech you on the mercies of God, on the sacrifice of Jesus to change your life. So because there was a great sacrifice and God loves you so much, that has got to bring a change in your life. So when we're actually presenting God to people, we've got to have this balance correct. We have to have it correct. If you talk and love at people and you're not telling them that they're in danger of dropping into hell if they don't repent from their sins, you're misrepresenting God. You are misrepresenting the holiness of God and you diminish the holiness of God. And when you diminish the holiness of God, you stand before a holy God accountable for actually portraying something that he has portrayed on the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, God was not saying that I am taking it easy on sin and I just love you. When Jesus died on the cross, he was saying, I take sin so seriously that I will kill my own son to pay for the price of your sin. Sin is that that terrible thing. See how seriously I think about sin and unholiness. But see my incredible love as I give up my own son to take that for you. Both there, the incredible holiness of God and the incredible love of God stretched out in Jesus. And when we present Jesus to the world, we do God a disservice if we resent just one side or the other. So if I stand up and I shout and I scream and I tell them that they're going to hell and God's going to get them if they don't repent, then I'm guilty of transgressing the character of God because it's the love of God that is being shed aboard toward these people. Through Christ, I have to do both things. I have to warn them of the judgment and tell them of the incredible love of God. They have to go out both at equal strength. You cannot do this one high or one low. You just become like a cult that knocks on the door. Well, we want you to come and join our church because God's not that bad. The worst you could get would be into non-existence. Friends, worship is a deed done in the acknowledgement of nature and character. So the things, the way I live, whether I preach, whether I sing, whether I mow somebody's lawn, whether I work in a secular work and I do it as unto the Lord, all of that has got to be done with a correct balance with regard to the holiness of God and the holiness of God will require my life to change because I will conform myself to his holiness and be representing him so I can't live in sin while I'm living this Christian walk. And it will require me to live the love of God, being merciful and gracious to those around me, extending the mercy of God. They've they've both got to be there. In anything I do, I've got to show the the tension between those two things, the love of God and the mercy of God. Are you with me? Do you grasp that? Because if you diminish any one of those things, you are misrepresenting God and, and in a terrible sense. If you, if you stand up there and just say one and not the other, you misrepresent God. You have to bring, bring both. If it's all grace, you miss the judgment. If it's all judgment, you miss the grace. It is truth and grace together. Truth and grace. Okay, here's a passage of Scripture. This, I think, shows it. I think it shows it beautifully. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 11, and then I'm going to go on. He says, So make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. So our desire is to please Jesus. Okay, Paul says, you know, make it your goal to please him. For we must all be appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that we may receive what is due him for the things that we have done in our body whether good or bad so we all and this is the beamer seat of christ it's not the judgment whether you're going to get to heaven or not this is where you're going to get a reward for the works that you've done it says since therefore we know what it is to fear the lord we try to persuade men what we are is plain to god and i hope it is also plain to your conscience so what he's saying this is there's a motivating force within us we try to cross the street Because we fear God. What would the fear of God be pointing toward? What attribute? His holiness. You see the holiness of God and what happens? You fear God. You have an awesome respect for God because of his holiness. And because we see the holiness of God... We fear him. We know that we're going to stand before him and we're going to receive a judgment for everything that we do. We're going to receive a, uh, a reward or we're going to receive a debit. You know, Everything that we do, we're going to be judged for. Our tests, our works are going to be tested by fire and they'll be burned up or they'll be, they'll be lasting and, and the fire will test it all. And, and because everything that we do is going to be tested by God, we have this sense of fear. We try to please him so we have the holiness of God motivating our lives, our behavior, our actions. It's there, okay? Look at this passage. Same same chapter, just a few verses on, and here's what he says. For Christ's love compels us. Now what's the love of God? That's the other side to the holiness of God. And he's saying, okay, I'm, I'm trying to persuade men because of the fear and that's causing me to think about my life to keep my life holy and at the same time i've got this incredible love of god that is compelling me so i've got these both these these two attributes of god his holiness and his incredible love both are are pushing me forward one to correct my lifestyle my way of living and the other to become compassionate and merciful for those around me both pushing me on it's Christ's love that compels us, because we were once, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died, and He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and was raised again. So our whole life, this is the sacrifice of our lives. Our whole lives are lived to God, to to to, to do the, what He wants to do through our lives. This is we, this is where we are conformed to His image, and not conform to the way of the world and the second corinthians five sixteen to 7 it says so from now on we regard no one from a worldly pers- point of view though once we regarded christ in this way we do not any longer therefore if any man is in christ he is a new creature or a new creation the old has gone the new has gone come now i want, I want to just draw your attention to the first verse there it says we used to think of jesus as a bearded and sandaled hippie who walked around the streets a historical Jesus. When we pray, we used to think of Jesus as being Jesus who walks around with sandals on in the dusty street and, and, and is nice to people. It's a historical view of Jesus. Jesus is not a historical person any longer. Where is Jesus? This is where he lives. There's no bearded, sandaled, skirted hippie living inside of us here. Jesus, the living spirit of God, rests within us. So Paul is actually drawing our attention to that. He's saying, I don't want you to have a, a historical perception of Jesus because you limit Jesus by having a historical perception of Jesus. Jesus is not history. Jesus is present and is now, right in you, with you now. He's here in your life. He says, we once had this point of view, but we do know so no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ and Christ is in him, he is a new creature creation the old has gone the new has come and so he says we've got this new life that we're living now because jesus all this is from god who reconciled us to himself through christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation what is reconciliation sorry forgiveness is a start i mean you can forgive somebody or have received forgiveness but not reconcile with somebody i mean you can somebody can be Somebody can kind have of hurt you and then died, and you say, well, and Jesus, and you've never forgiven them, and then you, you come before God, and God says, You need to forgive your father or your mother for doing this to you, and they're dead now. Uh, you can't reconcile with them because they're not there, but forgiveness would be the, the beginning of, of, if they were there, the beginning of a reconciliation, wouldn't it? So forgiveness would start, but what is reconciliation? Yeah, to be made one again, to come together again, to be made one again. So what what God was doing through Christ and he's doing in our lives is he's giving us this ministry where we're going out and we're taking a person who doesn't know God and we're saying, come, come and be reconciled to God. Come, come to God so that you can then become one with God again. There's something that's separating you from God. Now we have, you and I have this ministry where we are bringing people back to God. That's why it's really important to cross the street. That's why it's really important to get to a place where you know that your life has got to be lived right before God. Your message has got to be right. You've got to present both the holiness of God and the love of God. But your heart is to bring people back to the Saviour, bring people back to God, bring people back to those that, that, you know, they've been tossed away from him because of their sin and bring them back so they have to deal with their sin and come to the savior he's given us this ministry of reconciliation that god was reconciling the world to himself in christ not counting men's sin against them for he has committed to us the message of reconciliation in verse 20 to 21 he says we are therefore christ's ambassadors and through god we're making this his appeal through us uh, sorry we are christ's we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you as Christ on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And there is all wrapped up, the judgment of God and the love of God, all wrapped up together in a beautiful balance. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that he could be punished on our part. No, no exemption, no release from the, the consequence of sin. A full, uh, you know, look, it's a simple thing, really. If God were to let anybody go for doing anything wrong, he would cease to be God. Whatever you've done wrong, someone's got to pay the price for it. If you told a lie, Someone has to be punished for the lie that you told. If you were immoral, someone has to be punished for the immorality. If you stole something, someone has to be punished for the stealing. It's it's not enough that you. It's not enough that you say, "Oh well, Jesus will forgive me." No, no. Someone had to be punished for it. Everything has a price to be paid. There are no free lunches. You've heard that. There are no free lunches, and exactly right. There are no free lunches. If you got away with your sin, someone didn't. And in God, because God is holy and righteous, there is always a payday. And God has said that he put all of the bills on his son, Jesus. These are the debts that you and I ran up. These are the bills that we had to pay that we refused to pay. And Jesus took all of those bills upon his life, He took them and he says, now I will pay the price for all of this. And he became sin for us. And then God punished the sin in him. That's the holiness of God. But him taking it, saying, here I am. I've come to do your will, O God. I am the sacrificial lamb. Kill me now and spread my blood to extend mercy for them. There is the love of God. You have the holiness of God that kills Jesus and the love of God that takes the punishment for us. Both of those must be expressed. Acts of service. If you're going to do work for God, you have to express through your life, number one, the holiness of God and the love of God. And they have to be in equal tension. Otherwise you're misrepresenting God. If you to live a life of worship, a life of latrio... The life of Latrio understands that there must be an equal balance between those attributes of God. Now think about that. What's the application of my life this week? You know, I think that I can tell somebody about Jesus and then live a sinful life. It's okay. I can, I can say with my mouth, I love Jesus and I can witness to people and tell them about Jesus. But when I go home into my room, into my quiet place, into my silent place, I will live differently than what I'm speaking to them. There's an inconsistency there. Latrio, to live a life of service, is to live a life of consistency. So that when I'm alone privately, I understand the righteousness of God and the holiness of God and I live accordingly. And so when I'm out publicly and speaking and extending the grace of God, I'm doing it because I know the love of God and the grace that he affords to them. I'm doing them both. You understand that, so that's the life of Latria. We talked about the life of um, crossing the street. Listen, ministry is—it's it, doing things for others. You have to do it with the right understanding; otherwise, it just becomes stuff that you're doing. Why are you doing what you're doing? What's the motive for you doing it? What's the motive of living right? What's the motive—motive motive of going across the street and, and, and sharing the grace of God? What, what's it about? Have you got the holiness of God in the right place? Have you got the love of God in the right place? Have you, got, have you married them both together so your life is lived in a tension between the two of them? Unable to break either of them. The holiness of God controlling your life and the love of God driving you forward. It's a beautiful passage of Scripture in Titus chapter 2. That I've got here and I'm just going to share this with you as we finish. chapter 2, says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Now, see, this is the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. It has appeared to all men. What does it teach us to say? Read it with me. All read it with me. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no. Okay. This is the, what does the grace of God teach you to do? Oh, wait a minute. What we hear sometimes is the grace of God teaches us to say, oh, don't worry about that. God just still loves you. Wait a minute. The grace of God does not dismiss sin. The grace of God does not whitewash Christianity and make it just a loving big embrace. The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. And to live a self-controlled, upright and godly life in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our God and Saviour Jesus. Look, God's grace does not diminish sin. It recognises the payment for sin and it lives in accordance to that. And I've said it to you before and I've said it to you again. It was John who said, the Apostle John who said, the Christian who is born of God, cannot continue in sin because the seed of God remains in him. It's impossible for him to continue to sin. So much so is that sense of holiness. Uh, we know that John saw the crucifixion. We know he was there through the pushing, punishment, the whipping and all that. He, he stayed. He was the only disciple who stayed the whole distance, right from the very beginning of the, 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 the trials, the... True to the very end, when he gave up his his life, Jesus said, he said to John, "John, your mother, your mother, John." You know, he, he was right there at the cross. He he stayed the whole and he watched the punishment and he watched the, the the punishment for sin. He watched the holiness of God being exercised against his own son. He watched what it cost for sin. And now he says, you know, if you knew that, you wouldn't want to sin anymore. You wanna just move yourself away from sin and move yourself to God. And then he's the one, the apostle of love. Everything you read in the, in the first John, second John, he's the lover. The apostle of love. This is that you love one another. If you don't know you can't if you don't love your brother, you don't know love God, because God is love. He's the one who talks about love, and yet he's the one who speaks about the incredible holiness of life that you will not ever sin. There's a balance of the tension between the holiness and the love of God. You get that wrong, you got it wrong completely. Do you understand me? Listen, friends, young ones, you gotta deal and have a life of holiness. You gotta live in holiness that does not diminish. The love of God. And you've got to live a life of love that does not diminish the holiness of God. You've got to have compassion and mercy and grace for those who've fallen. For those who can't make it or don't get it right, you've got to extend yourself a second time and a third time. How many times should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times seven? Jesus said no, 70 times seven. And then he says, if you don't understand how much sin you've been forgiven and you don't forgive your brother the same amount, he says, it's bad stuff. What's happening here? He's saying, you live right, but you be very gracious to those who keep on falling. And you forgive them. And you keep extending yourself. And forgive them again. But don't condone sin. And deplete holiness. In the extension of that love. Because that's a miscarriage of worship. You think you got that? I hope you got that. If we have got across the street. We have got to go across with two messages. One of holiness. And one of love, and they have to be joined, amen? amen. Father, we just ask that you'd help us to ingest this, Father, to, 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 to eat it, Father, to chew it over, Lord, to meditate on it, Father, in our own lives, Father, to understand it fully, Father, what it means to live right and to be holy, the grace of God that brings salvation to. Lord, so purge our lives from all sin, Father, Lord. And then, Lord, help us to understand the the mercy that we are to extend to others, Father, and the grace that we are to extend to others, Father, as we teach them to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion, Father. Lord, help us to walk this line, Father, where we hold both intention, Father, and both communicate both properly, Father, in Jesus' name. We ask you to help us to live it, Lord, that we may live a life of worship and service before you, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.